This podcast is brought to you by the Common Mission Project. Hello and welcome to the Common Mission Podcast. I'm Jim Santa. With me is my co-host Rodrigo. How's it going, Rodrigo? Very well, Jim. How are you? I'm good. It's good to. This is going to be our last recording session before the end of the year. Um, so it's really nice to be able to spend some time with you before the holidays and and all the the craziness that's associated there. So I'm glad we could get together today. Happy holidays to you, to your family, and to our listeners. Hopefully, they're having a great time, whatever they celebrate, and uh, and they're done with the presents, and everybody's now at home uh, getting ready uh, to spend some good time. Yeah, or if you have crazy family members, if you're keeping your sanity and everything else like that. So, um, <laughs> you know, respect your own boundaries, as we'll say, and that would be... <laughs> We could have a whole episode on this on family dynamics, but we'll keep that for another time. We, we should do. Everybody's doing it, right? So we have. A, we should have a how to how to talk with your crazy uncle about innovation, right? So we, yeah, we don't we have go. we don't have that episode. Yeah, well, I think tomorrow. So we're recording this on December twentieth. Tomorrow is Festivus. So um, for those uh, <laughs> other Seinfeld fans that are listening, uh, maybe airing grievances and the feats of strength tomorrow would be uh, would be a good way to start off your holiday season, but. Uh, Grab your aluminum tree, your aluminum pole out of the attic, as uh, Mr. Costanza had done. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyways, no airing agreements is here today, Rodrigo, um, but we're going to have a good conversation uh, around. So we're, we're looking around, um, you know, with the holiday season being at what, what it is with the consumerism and a lot of different things. We, you know, and not taking necessarily a negative uh, approach in this, but we're talking about desirability um, and desirability, not just from like a hacking for defense or hacking for method, but just the idea of meeting needs and creating demand. And there's a lot of great examples of this that exists from within the, the, the real world, um, you know, like organizations and obviously with the hacking force. So Rodrigo, um, you did a tremendous amount of work getting this put together, this episode and, and kind of reflecting on it. So uh, I'm going to kind of kick this over to you as terms of, like the introduction here about what we're going to be going and discussing and, and all those good things. It's 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 a key, it's a critical component of what we do in 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 the hacking for world and in general of what we do uh, in the innovation realm, uh, which is the idea of desirability, right? And desirability it's a it's a it's a non-trivial uh, component of the. A lean launchpad process. It's a whole section of the canvas. In right, actually, probably the argument is the most important section of the, of the lean launchpad methodology is that right side of the canvas, right? We say beneficiaries and value Correct. propositions. If you don't get those nailed down, you got nothing, right? That's kind of the way we approach it. Exactly. So at least at the very beginning, right, when we're trying to look for product or mission fit, product market fit or product mission fit, uh, <laughs> Uh, the desirability quadrant is really the one we tend to concentrate. And for most hacking for programs, it is most of what we do is there, right? Certainly right. we want to look at, at, at the feasibility and viability parts of it, which are the other parts of the canvas. Uh, but uh, in, 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 in a hacking for program of a quarter or of a semester, we really are looking for that product or mission market fit, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and if we if we don't have it, then we don't have anything, right? So the, the, the holy grail of these pro processes mission uh, a product mission fit and right. desirability is what it is and and it's interesting because this idea of desirability has been now boiled to a science in mm -hmm. in in the literature of innovation uh, design and marketing right yeah. within the field of creating uh, or inducing demand for a product especially for a product that didn't used to exist and yes. we tend to have a fairly critical view of this right so as humans we ha we have kind of a cynical view and we will say it and you guys will recognize the the concept oh yeah all these companies are just trying to create needs on you 
uh, that you didn't even need you needed right so so the yeah. job of a, of a ca capitalist company is to make you want something you didn't know you wanted and we say that as a negative right right very cynical <laughs> approach to that perspective right that's fair correct that's, yeah. i think pretty pretty acceptable that most of us have either feel that way or have heard that from somebody exactly and the reality is that after you go to the most basic uh, Maslow hierarchy of needs, right? Shelter and food. Shelter Everything is it's a it's a, a, a induced demand, right? So mm -hmm. so you didn't know you needed a spear, or until you saw one, in, uh, you didn't need you didn't know that you needed fire until somebody brought it to you. Mm -hmm. You didn't know that you needed a comfy bed made out of feathers until it was shown to you, right? So mm -hmm. the reality is the process of innovation creates demands in needs or desires that you didn't know you had until it was shown to you. And that's a very famous quote that we'll revise later. So yeah. a lot of this season, right, is created around the idea of looking at the new gadgets on Amazon.com or Walmart or wherever you buy your presents, Target, uh, mm -hmm. and looking for something that you didn't know you needed and... Uh, uh, through marketing, communication, but also co-creation and mm -hmm. uh, build, measure, learn has right. been designed to cover a pain point that you didn't know could be covered because we embrace the suck, something we'll talk later. <laughs> uh, and therefore, yes, uh, innovation, especially disruptive innovation, frequently moves in a process of creating demand and desires where mm -hmm. they were not uh, to be found so not an apology for consumerism but also a way to think that as you are looking for gadgets or presents this year uh, you shouldn't feel too bad that you are uh, responding to that uh, created demand because that's how we improve the quality of the human existence Right. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think, you know, the idea of consumerism around the holidays and there are certainly negative aspects about consumerism. And I, you know, if we're looking at what's happening with uh, environmental degradation, with fast fashion and a lot of other things here, like there are obviously the bad things here that, you know, we don't want to sugarcoat uh, really. But I, it reminds me, you know, speaking of the holiday season, I'm definitely a, a holiday movie junkie. Um, and I was recently watching Jingle All the Way. I think that's the one with um, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the, and the action figure that everybody wants and he's trying to get. And, you know, you can look at consumerism from that respect of like, you have to have the newest toy. And I think we all, um, at least in our generation, uh, remember, uh, you know, was it the Cabbage Patch dolls and those different kind of things that existed <laughs> that created this crazy cacophony of consumerism to get these dolls. And you've seen that with electronics, whether it's, you know, like the iPhones and different things, but there's also inherently some good things about the connecting with the, the human spirit and those things. And I think when you look at some of those goofy Christmas uh, movies, especially that are around like, you know, productization of something thing it's like it's not really about that necessarily it's this connection to the human spirit and um you know you were mentioning about bringing fire we could joke about um you know prometheus being this little you know this tricky you know demigod or whatever it is and look at the good and the bad of what he did there um but it, it's it's not it, there's a lot more below the surface there but anyways i i'm going off on an unnecessary tangent here but um <laughs> sorry um but i think this is one of those oh, no. Yeah, but desirability, going back to the point you made, Rodrigo, when we think about this, and I'll, I'll frame it back to like the H4 experiences. The reason that as faculty members, we typically say you got to get that part right is if you think about all the tools that come as a subcomponent of this, thinking of product mission fit, which is not necessarily a tool, but it's an idea of the alignment between beneficiary and uh, value proposition. But then you also look at like the value proposition canvas, which again is those pieces of the canvas that are kind of zoomed in. And 
this is where desirability, to your point, has really been researched in the literature quite a bit. There's a lot of good examples. We're going to talk about some of those. And this idea of creating ma- uh, demand, but the idea is like you didn't know what you needed until you saw it. There, I think we can equate that in a lot of other ways to us. Um, I remember, you know, thinking about oh, I'm going to be building a, some type of report or something for a supervisor. He doesn't really know what he wants. Um, you know, this is a you know real examples in my past until I get, show him something and he's like, you know, you know what, that's kind of the idea what I was looking for. Can you you change all these things and everything else there is that we are meeting a need that they have. But then when you kind of go through this co-creation process with with a group of individuals or an individual, then you're also creating demand for, in this case, a, a data set. And we see this all the time is that you are meeting a need, but then as you start to, um, you know, pivot around what the problem is, you start being able to create demand for something that you've been building. And this is, you know, the idea here. So I think one of the things here, Rodrigo, we're going to kind of start off with is there, there's a dichotomy that exists, right, between needs and wants and the creation of all these different tools. So um, I let's start there. And, you know, I think a couple of examples that have been prepared for this is talking about, I think, rightfully so, Steve uh, Jobs and Henry Ford. And you've said this quote before on the on this podcast, Rodrigo, but Henry Ford said a really interesting thing about the invention of the Model T, but I think also the implications there beyond just that. What did, so what did Steve, what did a Henry Ford, excuse me, say about, you know, if you ask consumers what they wanted, what they would have received versus what he created? Yeah, so so there's this very famous quote that that uh, uh, Steve Jobs later would refer, uh, yes. and both of them had become part of the pantheon of of the co-creation movement, if you will, mm-hmm. that the lean is part of. Where where uh, Henry Ford said, uh, if 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 I would have asked people what they want, they would have said a faster horse, right? right. Uh, this is exactly what we're talking about here about the creation of demand, right? People know what they know. They are not in your field. They are not technologists. They they don't know about automobile technology. They don't know about combustion engine. You mm-hmm. you you tell me a field, right? So for the hacking for defense folks, uh, most of our uh, 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 forces who are dealing with a problem have been trained to deal with a problem in a certain way, and right. they don't necessarily will not necessarily will know how to deal with that problem differently because that's not their job, right? So mm-hmm. their job is to perform the duties at the highest level of performance po- possible uh, in order to achieve uh, military readiness uh, and uh, battlefield supremacy, whatever. But they'll do it the way it's... Be- so it's if you go and ask them, how should I do this? Well, they'll, they'll tell you, give me a faster horse. Do you give me a more powerful gun? Give me a more aircraft. So mm-hmm. And oftentimes, uh, uh, creating demand actually means uh, building a new value proposition that the customer didn't know they wanted until you mm-hmm. show it to them. That's the second quote by by right. uh, by uh, uh, Steve Jobs. Right. Uh, and then when you expose to them, you learn from the reaction. And the, the build, measure, learn cycle is built on this idea that you create a desirability on something I didn't know I wanted before. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's why we started with this conversation. So right. Uh, I'll show you something. This is why we insist so much about the idea of the importance of MVPs. Don't yes. come and just ask people. Show them something made out of styrofoam and cardboard. Show show, show them some doodles in your notebook. Show mm-hmm. them a very bare-boned version of what you're trying to do with an Arduino computer that you bought for 50 bucks on Amazon. Whatever you can do, show instead of telling, Right present something tangible if it's a gizmo or if it's a policy come up with a scenario or a simulation or a storytelling whatever you can do to create that demand and that desirability and this is what we were saying right so the goal of a 
hacking for project is to create desirability where there was none. And there was none, not because I didn't know this was a problem. It's because I hadn't even thought about there could be a solution for that problem, right? So yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you, I don't know if you've seen the meter thermometers. Yes, exactly. Uh, yep. I, I love them. I cook uh, with them religiously. So for those of you who are listening that cooks like engineers, as my wife likes to say, <laughs> right? So uh, she says that I, I cook without a heart, uh, but with a lot of uh, devices, and she might not be wrong. So meters are these amazing cooking devices where uh, it's a Bluetooth-enabled internal thermometer, like the ones that your grandmother used to use without Bluetooth. So who would have thought that you needed a smart device for something like that, right? So, right. But it'll, it'll give you a, a external temperature and internal temperature, something that all thermometers didn't used to do. It'll mm -hmm. give you a chart and a projection of how long it's going to take with those two numbers for the internal temperature to reach the current good level of cooking, etc. So... For many of us who didn't need that we needed a Bluetooth-enabled device, that's a great last-minute gift for <laughs> you guys if you're still looking for it because yeah. it made my life so much better and fun and my cooking more interesting, right? So mm -hmm. uh, I didn't know I needed it. So, yeah. so that demand was created on me by showcasing a product that met requirements I didn't know I had, but fixed a pain point that I have, which was uh, uh, most internal thermometers that I was using didn't give me the level of information I needed. So yes, the demand was created. You really don't need a Bluetooth-enabled thermometer to cook a ribeye. I'm sure that Julius Caesar ate really good steaks and they <laughs> didn't need any kind of fancy Wi-Fi-enabled thermometer. But that doesn't mean that the product is not desirable or needed, right? Mm -hmm. uh, right? Because making life better and more enjoyable and less brutish, nasty, poor, and solitary, as Thomas Hobbes would say, yes, uh, yes. and short, mm -hmm. uh, that is the job of innovation. Nobody needs to live to 80, right? The average lifespan in humanity for most of humanity has been 35 years old. Nobody right. needs to live more, but we like to live more. So uh, we demand to live more and we desire to live more. And therefore, medical sciences develop all the interventions needed to extend life, right? So the same goes to a lot of other elements in our, in our environment in which we've been introducing technologies that we didn't know. We didn't desire before because we couldn't express our need for it. But when a technologist or an innovator or an entrepreneur can articulate it and show it to us, we say, man, I really want that thing. And I couldn't, yeah, I think that's a really important thing here is we're talking about, you know, needs versus wants in some ways. And this, I mean, this is another rabbit hole, but it could be, but I think this is a really interesting point. What do you, if we're really being honest as like, as a human being, what do you need to survive? It's very little with respect to, you know, what we're sitting around our offices or whatever it is that we're looking around us. Uh, what we need and what we want are two different things oftentimes. And I think that you, you hit on a point that I think is really interesting, Rodrigo, is that if we as individuals, um, all of us could articulate exactly what we wanted, even if it doesn't, even if a solution doesn't exist, 
that would be nice, I guess. But the reality is it does take these innovative thinkers, somebody who's looking at a at the same problem everyone else has experienced over the years and looking at it differently because they've understanding what the needs are, then something else can be, or the wants really could be articulated in such a way they can build something new. So going back to the idea about the, you know, Henry Ford, for example, with the car, the cars existed before Henry Ford, but Henry Ford did a lot of that was a, a lot of good marketing, a lot, you know, what he was building, the assembly line. There's so many interesting features about what Ford did differently than say Mercedes uh, did in Europe. But that doesn't mean that uh, in my mind here is that they didn't, they were creating something that was brand new in some way, not because it was articulated really well. They just had the, this vision and path to be able to move ahead with it. And I think it's a really interesting way we could look at it about, like, even if you think about warfare, if we think about, um, you know, going back, you know, thousands of years, yeah, throwing rocks and using slingshots and spears and whatever else available to us, face-to-face combat, which still does happen. But now you've got smart munitions and you can you can fly a drone from, uh, you know, uh, a base in Nevada in the Middle East and that person's never felt the sand beneath their feet. Things change inherently, whether it's good or bad, things do change. And we, with the creation of new, uh, with new problems, solutions come through based on the validation of the needs of, of that uh, group, even if they didn't know it existed before. I think we say this all the time. Like I bought something, um, oh, my, you're going back to cooking, I, my sous vide machine that I have for, for making things. I lived my whole life with being able to cook normally. But when I got this device and everything I could do, like the thermometer, it's like this changed the way that I look at the world around me. It's not a need. It's definitely a nice to have, but I don't need it. Do I, and I think it's a really interesting paradigm that if we're honest with ourselves, do I need the most new, the newest iPhone? I don't need it. Um, well, you know, if Apple starts throttling it and battery degradation, sure. But the point, you know, um, but it's we have to be honest with ourselves. And I think there's sometimes that just emotional disconnect between needs and wants. You say, well, I need to get this. Do you really? No. So let's just be honest with ourselves. But that's the issue, right? So so the need versus one, which is kind of the normal definition, misses the point that uh, you don't need much, but life sucks without it, right? Exactly. So, Could uh, agree more with you. And, and I mean, you don't need poetry. You don't need music. You don't need the arts in general. Uh, but life would be very bleak and depressing and, and negative without them, right? So exactly. and therefore, it's, it's, it's fantastic that a lot of human uh, ingenuity goes to things we don't need. Uh, again, and as I said, from an evolutionary perspective, you don't need to live past 35, right? So, but who cares? I want to, right? So, mm-hmm. so the, the job of the innovator is to find your pain points and address them in a way that you're willing to trade in the private sector, your hard-earned money, your disposable income, because that's the other thing. We don't need disposable income, right? But we mm-hmm. build societies where poverty is not the norm. Fantastic, right? So so we give people a rule of law and structures and, and market forces that create jobs that pay decently so you can live beyond your needs and you have things like not only disposable income but disposable time you don't have to spend your your life hunting deer and and uh, looking for water right so we right. have met all of our needs and therefore we can move to the next scales in that needs pyramid right and ultimately their job of the you know, now one exception that I will say because you talk about armed forces and this goes to our hacking for defense folks but also hacking yeah. for for home security yeah. uh, there's a component here. First, we're talking about disruptive innovation where we want to create needs that were not there before. But then when you are in competitive environments like a military battlefield, 
uh, what Schumpeter called uh, the war of substitution becomes more important because yes. uh, it turns out that I don't, I don't, I don't need uh, steam engines instead of sails in my in my destroyers. But it does make me a much more effective uh, fighter. And if I have them and you don't, then you do need them yourself. Right? Exactly. Because if not, I'm going to crush you, right? So in competitive environments where you're fighting against rock cartels or where you are in a battlefield, uh, it turns out that the need of constantly improving, uh, it's a competitive imperative. Because if not, the forces that don't improve become irrelevant, obsolete, and ultimately defeated in in, in the context in which they were created. So uh, it turns out that for companies, it's more or less the same, right? If they're not constantly improving their product, right? If you, I, we talked about this one before, Jim, you're in Rochester. If mm -hmm. you deny the fact that technology has reached a point in which film-based photography is uh, now being defeated by digital photography and you're incapable of transitioning to that one, uh, well, you will be rendered obsolete and yes. you will lose your market share and ultimately you will go bankrupt and your people will lose their jobs. So there is an imperative to constantly improve qualities of products because if you don't, your competitor will, right? And, right, right. And, and this is where this idea of constantly understanding market demand and transforming it's so important this is why it's so important to lead to be a leader in the sense that you don't wait your customers or your user base or your beneficiaries to tell you what they want with surveys you show it to them and guide right you induce that demand in the good sense of the world in order to show them that there is a better world right so um, uh, jim you serve we talked a lot about it sometimes we, we discuss this concept what does it mean to embrace the suck. What what, what what do we what when do military forces personnel says, well, we just embrace the suck? Yeah, uh, you know, that was like an everyday thing, right? We would, would make that joke, but it was what that really meant is that these are the only options we have. So you and you don't have an option not to do something. So you're using what technology, what resources, whatever the weather's doing, and you're just dealing with it, right? And it's a way of just I think for us it was kind of internalizing, like, yeah, it's bad, but this is how it has to be done. And everybody else is dealing with the same issue that we're dealing with, so we're just going to embrace it. And that is one of these really interesting, you know, we say it kind of jokingly, you know, brace the suck. And I, I love saying it just because it makes me laugh, but the reality <laughs> is is that in lieu of there being a better solution, and I don't know what the solution looks like, this is what I'm going to have to do, right? So, um, you know, always good ones. Like I was, I was, um, I was light infantry. We walk everywhere. So, what do you do? You, you, you got your heavy rucksack on. You're carrying your weapon. You're going miles and miles, whatever it looks like. And embracing the suck was like, well, you got to walk there. So, what do you, what do you do? You look for a lighter boot. You look for things like, you know, making sure that you're kind of being able to put yourself in a good place, but. Um, you know, there wasn't like an opportunity to have like levitating boots or something or whatever. So you just, you use what you have, you get the best of what you can deal with, and then you kind of suck it up. And I think it's important to embrace the ideology of embracing the suck in the military is important because situations are sure. awful sometimes. But the reality with that too, is that, um, well just because it's terrible, does it need to keep being terrible? And I think that's the unanswered question and, that we don't look at closely enough. That is the point, right? So when, right. when Henry Ford says, uh, I, if I, I ask people what they would want, what, what would they want? And they would give me, they would ask me for a faster horse. It's because people are embracing the suck. Exactly. Right? Yes. It, uh, so don't get me wrong. Uh, uh, horse are pretty. Horses are pretty. My, my wife is a horse rider. So they're fantastic, right? They're cute animals. They, they, yeah. they, 
but they're horrible transportation mechanisms, right? right. So they, they, they met a need at a time in which we didn't have combustion engine. But I mean, it, you imagine going a, a, a 200 miles uh, horse riding, your, your back will hoard, hurt, your coccyx will be uh, in pain. You might That's need to ref refresh the horse, so you need two or three, they get sick, etc. So now mm -hmm. there's a niche niche need where steel horses are a decent mo mode of transportation in some places Absolutely. on the planet right yes. but in general an automobile a, a ford escalade right a nice subaru a nice tesla are more comfortable ways from going to point a to point b right so a multi was a better option than a decent horse in those times so uh, but people didn't know what an automobile was. This was very new technology. Combustion engines were in there at the beginning of their development. So mm -hmm. uh, people had embraced the stock, their heuristics, right? Their mental models, their ideas, the paradigms, right? Biases mm -hmm. were based on that. And therefore, whenever they would be asked about something, their desire was what they had just a little better, right? This is the yeah. Kodak syndrome, right? We will keep making film just a little better, better resolution, better density, etc. instead of completely changing the paradigm, which is what disruptive innovation says will eventually end up happening. So uh, embracing the suck is something that we all do, right? We're wired to do it, as you said, because we, yeah. as... Uh, uh, survivalist apes are super adaptive. So you can put a human being in the most difficult condition and after a while it will adapt and thrive. That's why we live in every ecosystem on the planet, in every mm -hmm. temperature, in every style. We can be rich, we can be poor. So give a human a system in a bureaucracy, for example, and if the system sucks, DTS, I'm looking at you, the defense travel system, uh, we <laughs> learn to live with that, right? We work with it. We, we, we spend billions of dollars in labor time training people and fixing vouchers that didn't need to be done because a better system would do a better job. But we do it, right? Because right. it's what we do, right? So it's, it's, it's the nature of humanity's adaptation to actually lack the uh, clarity on the desirability of a possible better world is the job right. yeah. of the innovator to create it, to show it and convince you. And that's creating demand. So that's where I'm saying being cynical about the fact that an innovator needs to make you want something you didn't want before is wrong because the job of a innovator, of an ethical entrepreneur, if you want, is to show you that a better world is possible. And a better world can be, mean a lot of things. It can mean the, the novel creation of vaccines where now kids don't have to die of uh, bacterial or, infection or, yeah. or polio vaccine, right? right? Uh, sorry, bacterial so antibiotics. But it also might mean a better calendar app so your life is a little better in a meaningful way, right? So mm -hmm. ultimately... Uh, uh, the, the the rate or, or, or of change, it's not necessarily important. And we've seen in Hacking for programs, right? They're Hacking for programs that literally go and save lives uh, in the battlefield, right? right. So, yeah, real life, uh, real, real, real implications of getting something directly there, right? So, yeah. uh, and there's some others that they just make some admin process a little better. So, so the taxpayer doesn't have to pay that much money to do something that could be done more effectively. Mm -hmm. Both are right, right? So, yes, and both, both are right. Are creating demands and inducing desirability where there was none, you will need to convince a bunch of generals and admirals that doing something different, it's important, right? You will need to induce their desirability to create a demand in what they thought was a process they could live with. Right.
And I think that's, you know, you mentioned about that. And I think this is where the short sightedness of, of, of people comes in. I'm absolutely guilty of this is that, uh, well, this is just the way it is. I'm going to deal with it. And I'm going to, I'm going to, it's going to be, di- it's just going to have to deal with it this way. But, you know, if you look at just the innovations of things that have happened, you know, just, you know, even within the last 10 years about having vehicles that have collision detection and control and all these things like, yeah, I could have the vehicle that was made in 1950 that's built probably pretty safely or whatever, but I really like the backup camera being yep. able to see where I am in relation to people. And I've, why go back to doing things the old way? Did I need that? No. But is it nice to have? Yeah, I think it really is. So I've changed my perspective on things, even though I didn't think necessarily, you know, when I was 16 and learning how to drive, do I need a backup camera? Like, no, you put your arm on the on the passenger and you watch out. But it so, is really nice being at the grocery store and not backing into a car or a person because a car stops there, you. There is a joke among doctors, um, uh, pediatricians, that a, a father comes and asks, uh, an anti-vaxxer comes and asks the doctor, hey, doctor, do I really need to give uh, my children the vaccines? No, just give it to the ones you want to keep. Right. So uh, to, to, to your point. Right. So you don't you, I mean, uh, ultimately, sure, the uh, uh, playgrounds in the 1940s look like dead traps. Right. Oh, and, gosh. And, I mean, look at like the way those were back then. Like you're surprised. And most lived. kids survived. Right. So, yeah, yeah. So, sure. But many didn't. Right. So the amount yeah. of fatalities in playgrounds in the 1950s was three times higher. Fatalities, not only injuries, but fatalities. Right. fatalities right. They are now. Right. So, uh, sure. Today, it feels that like we're creating a bubble generation and all the criticism. But I kind of like the idea of my children surviving their time in the playground. Right. So it's yeah, a, I mean, just, seems, you know, just trivial thought coming home safely from playing on now, the playground, right? Did, exactly. So the parents <laughs> in the 1950s, one, did, they didn't care. No, they love their children very much, but a demand for a, a safer playground or a backup camera hadn't been created, maybe because the technology was not there. Maybe because right. we didn't know about ergonomics. Maybe because we didn't have the, the cost. I mean, a camera in the 1980s was a big thing. You couldn't just yeah. put it in the back of your car, right? No. So. Thankfully, miniaturization and the advance in semiconductors uh, has made it possible that we can have cameras that cost 20 bucks that are the size of a dime and that you can glue wherever you want, right? right. So that made us opportunities that entrepreneurs could explode, exploit, but you needed to show it to people. And one of the things that I think is important here to, to, to showcase uh, that it's so important about the lean launchpad process, we know that it's a great process to discover the edges of the problem and thus discover desirability. But one right. thing that we don't talk enough about it, maybe, is that it's also a great way of communicating the value of your product. Because yes. if we oh, are yeah. co-creating it together, mm-hmm. right, you will get to see it. So if I take a bunch of uh, rangers, right, uh, infantrymen, whatever, and I just come with a fully developed product and show it to them and tell them that they have to do it, they'll give me the middle finger because I'm just imposing it on them. Right. But if I come to them, I show them something, they tell me what they need, I come back, I tweak it again, I come again, we're co-creating the product together. I am building that desire because they are part of the creation process. So products built in a lean launchpad a, a dynamic tend to build that desirability as they are mounted and you cannot wait for version 4.0 right so right. people are just expecting it and they're actually desiring it because they told you what they want so ultimately one of the things that lean launchpad does really well is in this in this idea of the science of desirability mm-hmm. is that it not only uh 
identifies the needs, it communicates the desirability to the critical stakeholders, uh, uh, beneficiaries, and, and customers. And not only does it does it get them that co-creation part there, but I think the other part is the investment that, that they're having by working with those individuals as the innovator, the entrepreneur, is you're able to say, and this is the reality, if people could really articulate what they wanted, unencumbered, whatever that may look like, I think for the most part, they probably would, right? Like, I, I know this doesn't exist, but if I had someone that did this for me, that would be great. But that doesn't always happen. And I think through like this uh, beneficiary discovery process and, and this co-creation product mission fit um, that that's really interesting to me is that by being able to go and say, okay, we don't know, we we think we have an idea of the problem, but we don't know what the end state could look like by solving it. We are, we, we know what we'd want to look like, but we don't know how we actually get there. And I think this is a really empower, uh, powerful thing about this, you know, creating this demand is that when, if I could tell you exactly what I needed, great. But if I can, that's a great thing. But if I can tell you, here's all the, all the pain points and an ideal end state of what this could look like, that lets that innovator go back. That lets that team go back and say, okay, here's our whole swarm of problems, right? We've got this, you know, this uh, bee's nest of, of all these issues going on. Well, what shape does it all look like? And what is this pointing towards? And I think that's the way of creating demand when you understand these are the pain points that you feel in this market with, you know, soldiers, rangers, whatever. And then you're able to kind of transition then saying, I know that you didn't ask me for this color, color pencil, Correct. but look what's really interesting here when you use it, what this represents for all of you. And I think that's fundamentally what's what's really interesting about creating that demand. It's not an artificial creation because you've met the pain points and you've co-created this with those users who are experiencing them. They just didn't know what they needed at the end of the day. That, that's, a, that's a great point. And the truth is that I think here's, here is something uh, that is going to sound uh, counterintuitive. I think that you really cannot... Uh, create a demand where none exists, right? Because I cannot brainwash you, right? So, well, that's a great point. So yeah, yeah keep going on this. I think you're going to be going, you're going on an interesting path with this, Rodrigo. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. People like to say, oh, marketing is just brainwash. It, it isn't. I cannot make you want something you don't want, right? It's very mm -hmm. hard to make you now. I can convince you and I can reshape and reframe. But if you really don't want something, uh, it's going to be very hard for me to get you to want it. My job is to find where that demand will be found in ways that you didn't expect. It. And my favorite example for this, Jim, in the Hacking for Defense world comes from mm -hmm. Aqualink. It's one oh, of those cases that we can use. So uh, you, you, you know it, many of our folks will, but basically uh, uh, the SEALs wanted a medical device to identify hypothermia when, when the SEALs would be in an uncompressed The SEALs surgeon, right, the chief medical Correct. officer. So this is like, I, I want to draw out that. That's an interesting um, oil and water um, comparison here, but please yeah. go ahead, Rodrigo. Yeah, so, so uh, and the team ended up developing something completely different, a buoy that could inform you of your location and position. So what they ended up saying is you don't need a medical device that tells you if you're getting hypothermia in the water. What you need is to get in the water, get out of the water faster, so you don't get to the point in which you have a hypothermia. So uh, what they asked was a medical device from the medical sciences. What they ended up was with a radio telecommunication device that comes from 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 a, a computer science and communication sciences. So it's a completely different field that ends up in any case fixing the pain point, but mm -hmm. the seals didn't know that they needed a better radio communication device. They did They did know they had a pain point. In this case, mm -hmm. pain point or folks are getting hypothermia because they're in cold water for too long. Right, getting lost and And the else, logical right. thing was to ask for a faster horse, right? Give me a hypothermia sensor. 
well, how about this? I'm not going to give you a hypothermia sensor. I'm going to give you a way so you can get out of the water 40% faster so you don't even have to worry about hypothermia anymore. This is a way in which I'm not creating the demand in the sense that I'm making you want something you didn't really want, but I am creating the desirability because you didn't think that this would be possible. It was through the process of co-creation and that team worked incredibly close with the SEAL team uh, Mm -hmm. that they ended up figuring out that there was a better place to intervene and to create a better technology to address that pain point. And, you know, one of the examples I give in the classroom, like when talking about this, Rodrigo, is, you know, think about you've you've broken your leg and you go into urgent care, right? So you go in there and there's a there's a couple of different options. I think there's only one in practice, but there's a couple of different options here. Um, A, you cannot go and just suffer with your broken leg. That's an option, of course. Um, One of the options is you go there and the doctor puts a, you know, takes an x-ray, puts a cast in your leg and says, all right, see, uh, I'll see you in in six weeks to get checked on. Or, and probably what most good medical professionals would do is say, well, how did you break your leg? And, you know, this is going to tell you a lot about what's happening. And we're talking about like, you know, uh, creating a need here, I think, is that, Hey, when I got out of bed um, this morning, I stepped down and, I, and my leg snapped. Well, that's a whole different root cause analysis that has to be done versus just putting a cast on there versus, hey, you know, I was playing with my kid and I jumped out of the tree and I broke my leg. Well, there's a very simple solution to that, dum dumb. Don't jump out of the tree chasing your kid. But if I stepped out of bed and my leg snapped, we've got a whole other root cause analysis that has to happen here. And that's what Aqualink did really well. And I, uh, I think that's what's one of the really important pieces of all this is that if, if finding the desirability meeting need here, um, there's so many good examples from the H4 example. We talked about Aqualink. I had a good one working with students um, from my uh, hacking for Homeland Security about a year ago. And I want to give a shout out to my TA Suvam who was on this team. Um, but they were working on accessibility through, um, through TSA, through security. And it was specifically about um, those who are not native English speakers. So they were thinking, you know, people coming from overseas or whatever. And, you know, we're talking, this kind of goes into dual use idea a little bit, but we're talking about the market is at RIT, we have the National Technical Institute for the Deaf. Who has issues going through security for non-native English speakers? Well, those who are deaf or hard of hearing that use ASL, do they not have the exact same communication barriers that present themselves as somebody who's coming from Qatar? Yeah, they, they are going to. So you're able to figure out where... Yeah, maybe there was the, the government hadn't identified this as being a need and accessibility issue. But when you're looking at your local community, you look at your friends and say, well, they don't have a way of being able to get through this because nobody can communicate with them. There's not, you know, maybe there is, and maybe people don't know this, the English language and American Sign Language are two different things. Uh, yeah. So there's not always that one for one. It's its own language. Uh, people don't always realize that. So you think, oh, you can just, you can get through. It's not that simple. And this is where one of those things where the team had identified a need a want of a population of individuals who had been ignored uh, from th- from this particular problem area. And I think this is these are one of the things that go really well in these programs. I think when student teams do this well is they recognize these unmet needs and desires, but they didn't know what the end state was going to look like. Just like the same thing that I know, um, you know, going from the, you know, first uh, house phones to what the car phone was going to look like to now carrying around a computer in my pocket. Like, did I need a smartphone 15 years ago? I, I kind of need it now. <laughs> uh, sometimes it'd be nice to not to have it, but you know what? I'm, and, I think you get what I'm saying at Rodrigo, I'm, I'm sure. No, and that's a great point. And one of the things that I would say kind of to, to close this is that, uh, yeah. in fact, a lot of what we call today platform-based innovation is precisely on the idea that 
uh, you will need to discover what the platform is for, right? So it's a very peculiar kind of way of building products because historically I build a drill to make a hole, right? So right. And, and we all know that people don't want quarter inch holes. In drills, they want quarter inch holes. But the idea was that you build a product to do something, a task, right? Mm-hmm. A machine, right? And a lot of the industrialist philosophy came from that. But when you think about platforms, right, and there are many technologies today that are platform-based, so smartphones is a typical example, right? For, right? for anybody who's listening to us, just look at your smartphone right now. If the screen is off, it's basically a slate, a black slate with nothing on it. Uh, and what you're holding in your hand is basically just a bunch of sensors, inputs, and outputs. It vibrates, it shows you things, it beeps, it blinks. Right, and then it measures its position in space with a GPS, and it, it turns around, and, and then you have some logic capability with a CPU and a GPU, mm-hmm. and a, that it's able to process things. And that's it. That's what that's what uh, uh, Apple put together first, and then Android followed uh, with with the current version of smartphones. And I always say it's almost like they threw a challenge at us and say, "Here is a bunch of sensors, a bundle of sensors, inputs and outputs, and logic." Do something with it. I don't know what, right? Right. And as as Google right now is going through the antitrust uh, 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 lawsuit, and Apple will go with the App yep. Store. What they did was very clever, and they said, "We don't know what this thing is for, so you go figure it out. Uh, do whatever you want with it, and I'll take thirty percent of whatever you come up with." Right. So I don't know if it's a shake shakedown <laughs> or or if it's the most clever thing ever. But it is true that it's 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 a way in which they said we don't know what this platform is for. You figure it out. You do yeah. things with it and yeah. find that desirability. And as you said, that unleash creativity. The same can be said today with drones or a drone yeah. or a platform technology. And you just mentioned sign language. We're seeing a revolution right now. For example, in in generative AI technology, we've talked about it in previous episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and now uh, generative AI is being used to build technologies that can do sign language, right? Where you can talk and you'll have an avatar that uh, does sign language for you. And then the opposite is that you can record somebody doing sign language and the LLM can perfectly well translate into American English, for example, mm-hmm. or even can do what you were saying. Sign language where somebody signs in English and the other one responds in French and it can translate now visually, which turns out it's a very difficult problem to solve. So yes. uh, we are in an amazing new moment in time in which platforms uh, ask what we call developers, even that, that definition, that, 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 pro- that job description, I'm a developer. When you're a developer, you're basically in the job of creating desirability for some product uh, that was not desired before by us, by that market. And that can exactly. be by creating an amazing medical use for your Apple Watch, right? Or it can be building Angry Birds and letting people be happy and fun with it, right? So ultimately, the job of the entrepreneur is to lead the way. And this is true in technology. And as we'll see at, in my conclusion, it is true also uh, it is true also for policy and all of the other fields in which hacking for teams operate. So, Rodrigo, before we get to the end here, I think this is one of the things, and you and I have talked a lot about this either in episodes or just you know in our other conversations. But we've already alluded to this quite a bit: the role of the visionary in thinking, uh, role of visionary thinking and innovation. And I think this is 
I've had arguments with people over over the years about the difference between genius and innovator or uh, visionary and those kind of people. And I, I, I know it is splitting hairs at the end of the day. We're not, we're not getting into that part of the conversation. But what I've come to appreciate with people who, even if I don't care for what they're building or what, you know their personal philosophies and everything else, is that visionary thinking and their role and what it is they're, they're producing. And we're seeing, you know, I think now, especially like where innovators like a person like, uh, you know, Elon Musk or Steve Jobs, where they became part of the uh, the social the f- social fabric of us became, you know, rel- you know, very famous, very wealthy, whatever. And again, not getting into what I think of of either of those individuals, it's here nor there. But in in the in the world of innovation, what what's the visionary's responsibility here? Why why have they become an important piece of the innovation landscape? So one of the things that we found. Recently, I mean, we, we have the evidence now recently in the leadership literature that we didn't have before, we should have known it, is that leaders need to lead, right? And, and that sounds yes. uh, like, a, like, like silly to be saying, it, but it is true, right? So if you think about the 1980s, right, the 1990s, uh, for example, in politics, now I'll use a different, so, so, so people don't think that this only works in technology. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, we saw the advent of the focus group and the, and the, and the poll-driven politician, right? And, and uh, we, were, we became very critical about politicians. I won't say names, but you can know it, that, that in the 80s and 90s, Americans who were alive at the time will remember that we actually used to complain that parties were too close, that there was yeah. no enough differentiation. Oh, Republicans and Democrats are the same. It's funny to think about that today in this era of extreme polarization when they cannot talk to each other. But in the 80s, our complaint was if you saw George Sr., George Bush Sr. or Bill Clinton, it was actually very difficult to differentiate policy or style, right? That the, right. That the distance between a, a, a mainstream politician in the right and a mainstream politician in the left was, uh, was actually very small. Right. And thin, like very different, like same coin. Yeah, so so the Tony Blairs of the world, of the Jacques Chirac in France, right? So these were people that everybody said, well, it doesn't matter if it's left or the. And part of that was that this this era, when 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 statistical analysis was becoming more mature with computers, was based on the idea that a lot of uh, uh, a lot of uh, electoral uh, strategies started using focus groups in order to go where the people want. So mm-hmm. basically, uh, asking for the faster horse. Right. right and right. Uh, for a while that worked and then we discovered that actually people like their leaders to lead and what we've seen since then is that when when a strong character comes and takes a position that is actually counterintuitive to their political party's uh, uh, ideology that leader can flip those electors and it makes sense right so mm-hmm. uh, a a a a average voter doesn't have a lot of time to read political science and learn what it should be its position of the war in Ukraine, right? So uh, it actually looks for the political entrepreneur to tell they what they should think based on their trust on that individual, right? Right. So political actors can flip uh, electors to make them believe the opposite of what their parties historically told them they should Right, mm-hmm. and we yep. see that heterogeneity right now a lot. So, uh, when you're a leader in a innovation project that needs to influence policy, this should be remembered, right? Because it means that even though the current paradigm, the people, the GS13 or GS15 who's managing that project has embraced the suck, 
right? Yes. And has been doing things the way he or she has been doing it for a while. That person can be flipped to believe mm -hmm. some with the right amount of entrepreneurial leadership, right? Yes. Lean launch, but it's a leadership mechanism. This is something that hasn't been said enough, right? Yeah. In which you co-create and you live with your people, but you lead, right? You are in the front coming with MVPs, uh, 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 risking skin and, and making uh, uh, critical choices in order to put together uh, something that will convince others that this is better than the alternative. Right. And I mean, you're seeing that constantly, again, not talking to the agreements with, you know, individual personalities. And I think anybody, you know, like we said a couple names here, um, that visionary leadership, regardless of what I think about them, is remarkable. And I think it's one of the things that this disruptive innovation that happens because people are able to say the art of the possible. And I think this is what's really interesting is there's, you know, these students and, you know, innovators are not necessarily encumbered with the, well, this is the way it's always been done. You don't hear those words coming out of their mouth. And if you do, it's, yeah, it's been done that way. So there's, there's either, we have to look into if there's something better we can do here. And I mean, again, faster, faster horse, or do we want a car? And this is where those visionaries are able to say, yeah, you wanted to get, you wanted to be able to get to this next state over within a couple of days. Um, you know, you can't do that with a horse. So here's something else we've created that's actually going to meet this need, for, you know, meet this unmet need for you and everything else. And that's the way this effort happens. So, and, yeah. And God, God knows that you will, I mean, you will know the trailblazers by the arrows on their backs, right? Yes. So um, when we transition from the sail to steam engine, we mentioned the amount of admirals. And I mean, you have to understand it if for our folks in the Navy or who have been in the Navy. I mean, we call people who work in ships in open sea, we call them sailors, right? So the right. sail it's was in the name. In, it's, it's part of the identity, right? So the idea that we're going to remove them and we're going to change the poetry of the sail, as some people, I mean, a, a clipper, it's a beautiful to th to thing to see in open sea. And we're, oh, yeah, making, we're changing these for a, a, a diesel engine that it's noisy and oily and you're going to look like a coal miner down there. <laughs> uh, well, it was a tough, tough pill to swallow. We're mm -hmm. seeing that in many innovations today when we ask uh, for... Uh, military forces to change the paradigm of what they're doing. But nevertheless, it is that leadership that ultimately has given us uh, technology. And I'll say that for, for all the criticisms that DOD might, we might do to DOD's bureaucracy, one thing DOD does well is to uh, war game different scenarios. And when we see an emerging technology today, DOD has developed mechanisms to accept that one and, and process as an alternative. But you need to lead beyond the paradigm, right? And, yes, and yes. And and this is really important. This is true in the private sector too. Uh, lean creates this desirability by leading forward into something people didn't know, showing them the Model T instead of the faster horse. Right. And I think that's, you know, to the, the wrap this up, Rodrigo, I think this has been, the, these are the kind of things that we're looking at where, you know, we kind of came in from this from a consumerism perspective. But I think what's really interesting, again, is I'm just, you know, kind of looking around my space and my office is thinking about these things that, I, that I've that i purchased or whatever. I, you know, you mentioned with the marketing, it's really interesting. Like I always, I joke around, was actually joking around with my wife yesterday. I was getting ads for like those really nice, like camper vans, you know, like the, like the uh, whatever. And I'm like, thank, thank goodness, like that's way out of the budget that I could ever afford because you're right. Like it's, <laughs> you know those it's do i need a van of course not would it be really nice so yeah it would be great but i you know i think it's like i'm not being brainwashed by marketing obviously 
you know, those, some of those talking heads and brainwashing, those kind of things do exist. But I think you have to, you know, from a product market perspective, and the things where we've been talking about here is that this is where the innovation, this is where uh, being able to kind of understand what are these unmet needs, wants, whatever terminology we want to have to use here. And I think that's really important that they, when you come at it in a kind of like this carte blanche idea of, yeah, we know, and, and, and the requirements engineering literature is very clear uh, clear about this as well. All the literature really says is, is that when you start with being agnostic to design or features or whatever else here at the early stages, it allows you to go well beyond what exists in current state. Because if we had been encumbered with this is all we have, we would still be, you know, sitting in caves, e you know, eating around a fire, you know, in, in, um, in animal skins, um, you know, living 20 years if we're lucky it's a different world. And it's because of people who've been like, well, you know, you don't have to eat the raw animal. It can be cooked. And if you even look like physiologically, we have evolved because of those types of disruptions that have existed from us, from, a, uh, from our evolution. And, and I, I would say one thing, and this might be a way of closing this part, especially as, as we are doing in this Christmas season or final or final purchases for gifts and all the things that come with it. Um, uh, we we create demand in any case when we are building innovation. It doesn't matter. It might be for vaccines or mm -hmm. for slot machines, right? right? The ethics of demand creation are not on the process of doing it because you need to do it when you're being an innovator. It's in what kind of products are you creating and what kind of real needs you are creating, right? So mm -hmm. uh, shark loans are meeting a demand. The demand is the need that people have at the end of the... Uh, a pay cycle to have some money because they didn't have enough, right? Unfortunately, they are addressing that demand in a fairly un unethical way and, and, and creating way, other sure. problems. Yeah, tobacco, right, created a demand. Yep. In this case, a physiological one, right? So mm -hmm. uh, demand creation is indispensable in the process of building successful products or services because that's what product market fit is. Uh, uh, the the difference here, and probably this is the, the, the thing that matters, is that as an ethical entrepreneur, uh, when you create that demand, you should be very conscious that the demand you're creating is one that is going to be there to make the life and the world a better place, right? So, and, and leave that one as we head to 2024, because as corny as it sounds, the job of the entrepreneur at the end when doing things right is and should be uh, making things better than what he or she found before. And I'm not even going to try to top that. So we're going to finish on Rodrigo's very wise words and absolutely agree with it. Well, Rodrigo, cheers to another fantastic year. Um, been a pleasure working with you. I hope everybody who's been listening, we've the last year we've really in, uh, increased our followership and listenership. I've received great notes. I know Rodrigo's even been stopped during lectures or other conversations with people that they've caught an episode. So to yep. all of you, Thank you for continuing to listen, uh, continuing to provide your feedback. And, and Rodrigo, thank you for the continued friendship and and uh, being able to work with you. It's always a pleasure, my friend. Thank you so much. And Jim, uh, I, I don't know if I may be able to say to the listeners, but the next time yeah, we no, yeah. talk to each other, uh, there might be a third member of the family. So yeah. Uh, yeah. best of luck. And that, there couldn't be a better gift for, the, for 2024 than that one. Yeah, yeah, we are uh, any day now, we are expecting our first. So uh, in the new year, new season, new family, it should be, we'll see what kind of noise and kind of patience Rodrigo has for the uh, the crying and everything. But no, we're very excited um, and looking forward to uh, the new chapter of life. It's going to be wonderful. Thank you. So. Congratulations. And and, uh, and we'll, but the best 2024 uh, for all of our listeners. So 
Absolutely. Thank you, Rodrigo. And to everybody listening, if you haven't subscribed, please uh, feel free to do so if you've been enjoying listening to us. And we'll see you next year. Thank you. Thank you again to the Common Mission Project for their support of this podcast. The Common Mission Project has demonstrated that students can tackle some of the toughest government problems and in doing so, create vibrant, diverse ecosystems where government, academia, and industry build partnerships around problems, prototypes, and solutions to urgent challenges facing our nation. To find out more about the Common Mission Project, please visit commonmission.us, which is linked in the description of this episode, as well as finding out options on how you can get more involved with our wonderful nonprofit organization, including opportunities to donate. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you on the next one. Thank you.